Castle Williams National Park Service. Located on Governor's Island in New York Harbor, Castle Williams was one of several fortifications, including Ellis Island and Castle Clinton at the tip of Manhattan, that protected the harbor and New York City from naval attacks in the early 1800s. The audio-described tour, narrated by Mary Saria Agliota and Tim Gelson, describes the interior and exterior of the fort and the many exhibits and artifacts found within its stone walls. Audio track one. Welcome, introduction, and audio guide instructions. A little over two and a half minutes. Welcome to Castle Williams and the audio-described tour of this historic location. You will be provided with direction and description. A male voice will read panel text and captions. At the end of each audio track, this tone will play. To let you know a track has played in its entirety. You currently should be in the castle's courtyard, about 10 to 12 steps from the entrance, near a doorway set in the wall. If you haven't already done so, please turn with your back to the wall and face into the courtyard. When you're ready, enter the number 2 on your audio guide keypad. Track 2. The Courtyard Inside Castle Williams. About 4 minutes. Castle Williams' large open courtyard is almost an exact circle, about 100 feet in diameter with a smooth concrete floor. The only straight exterior walls are located here, near the entrance, where the building has a right angle. If seen from above, it would look as if the castle has a point that points southeast. Inside, the three-story-high red sandstone walls ring the perimeter. Large windowed openings overlook the space. In the center of the courtyard is a touchable scale model of the fort. Later, your tour will conclude at the model. Across the courtyard, at about the two o'clock position, mounted from the roof and covering some of the windows, are four large illustrations printed on large fabric banners. Each illustration provides a peek behind the castle's walls into a casemate, a bomb-proof vault, presenting a view of how that section may have looked at a specific point in time. Slightly less than 60 feet in front of you, 56 and a half feet to be exact, is a non-tactile display that explains each image. As you prefer, you can move directly forward and stand near the display, or remain here. For each image, we'll identify its location and the year it represents, briefly describe the image, and then read the accompanying caption. Beginning at the upper left, the year is 1811. Two men with handheld tools chisel and build the castle's brick walls. A bright blue sky is visible through an arch, still supported with construction framing. Nearby, a uniformed officer watches over the work. The caption reads, Begun in 1807 to defend New York City from attack by an enemy navy, the castle is almost finished. Mason's work on the stone walls, as a recent West Point graduate and now an officer in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, inspects the work. Lower left. The year is 1814. A group of uniformed soldiers in the blue coats and white pants of the American Army gather around a cannon inside a casemate, pointing out through an opening in the castle wall. The caption reads, The War of 1812, the American War against Britain, is in its third year. Now, in September of 1814, at the height of the war, New York City is on edge, as Washington, D.C. and Fort McHenry in Baltimore, Maryland, have been attacked. Here, soldiers prepared to practice and test fire one of the castle's cannons. Upper right, the year is 1862. The casemate that used to hold a cannon has now been enclosed with a wood wall and door. The door is open and two soldiers wearing tattered Confederate gray uniforms smoke while an armed Union soldier stands guard. The caption reads, The Civil War is now in its second year, and Castle Williams is outdated as a fort. Besides being a barracks for troops headed to the battlefield, the Army finds an additional use for it as a prison for Confederate soldiers and now prisoners of war. Final illustration, lower right. The year is 1947. The casemate is enclosed with steel prison bars. The guard is now an American MP, or military policeman, and nearby are men in green prison uniforms. The caption reads, The castle is now a prison for soldiers that break the law, and now iron bars replace the wood doors. Most prisoners typically serve terms of less than one year, and often do odd jobs around the army post, like groundskeeping or even babysitting army officers' children. The door continues inside castle's ground floor casemates. To reach the next location, turn to your right and follow the castle's wall about 30 feet until you come to a casemate entrance enclosed with steel bars. The steel bar door will be open. Turn right and enter the first casemate. The next exhibit titled, To Be Useful, You Have to Change, will be about 10 to 12 steps directly in front of you, in the center of the room. When you get there, move to the right side of the exhibit, then enter the number 3 on your audio guide keypad. Track 3 to be useful, you have to change. About four minutes. The next eight locations on your audio-described tour take place inside the castle's casemates, all similar to this one in size and shape. 
Each casemate is generally square and about 32 feet deep from its interior to exterior wall. However, the interior wall's length is slightly shorter, reflecting the building's circular design. Each room has an opening onto the courtyard and two small openings, known as embrasures, on the exterior wall where cannons were once placed. Between most of the casemates are wide openings between the rooms. Between this one and the next, there is a brick wall with a standard-sized doorway just to the right of the center, towards the exterior wall. On this side of the exhibit, the panel is titled, To be useful, you have to change. A quote from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle newspaper from November of 1886 reads, Modern guns have now become weapons of such fearful power that fortifications built even so late as a quarter of a century ago have grown utterly obsolete. The dominant image is a historic illustration that gives a bird's-eye view of the Port of New York in Governor's Island in 1892. The harbor is crowded with sailing and steamships. The Statue of Liberty can be seen in the distance, and Castle Williams is prominent on the island. The panel text reads, Castle Williams' reuse was not unique. In fact, the Army often adapted old forts to new uses when changing technology made them obsolete. See how the castle and other forts in New York Harbor, active during the War of 1812, were transformed. To the right are three images of some other fortifications in the New York Harbor area. Fort Gibson was built on Ellis Island to serve in the War of 1812 and later became an immigration station. A photo of Castle Williams taken around the year 1900 shows the castle's casemates when they were enclosed for prison cells. A third illustration shows Castle Clinton, built for defense between 1807 and 1811. It later became an entertainment center and an immigration depot, and until 1941, the home of the New York Aquarium. Please continue around to the opposite side of this exhibit. The next side is titled, How Do You Engineer a Solution? On the face of the exhibit is a large flipbook that offers visitors more information on how this fortification came to be built, or more descriptions of the book's contents as well as portions of its text read aloud. Please press the green button now. The green button is located two rows above the five on your audio guide keypad. If you'd like to continue your tour, turn with your back to the flipbook display and move directly forward about six to eight steps until you encounter a brick wall. The doorway is located just to the right of this wall center. Pass through this doorway and into the next room. The next exhibit, with an example of the castle's block building material, is titled, Built by Skilled Hands, and is located directly ahead in the center of the room. When you get there, enter the number four on your audio guide keypad. Audio track layer. How do you engineer a solution? About five and a half minutes. Starting on the first page, left side, the title reads, Step 1. Define the problem. Three portraits are presented. The most dominant shows Jonathan Williams, the castle's designer, in 1815. In addition to being the superintendent of the military academy at West Point, he was also an engineer who believed in using mathematics and laws of physics to solve military problems. He studied military science in Paris and also served as secretary to his great-uncle, Benjamin Franklin, shown in another portrait. The third portrait shows William's friend and fellow amateur scientist, President Thomas Jefferson, who gave Williams the job of supervising coastal defense construction. The text reads, in 1807, rising tensions between the United States and Great Britain posed a problem for New York City. Its forts were old and outdated. They would be no match or offer any protection from a foreign navy. As the head of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, it was Jonathan Williams' job to solve the problem. He needed to design new fortifications that would best protect the city. On the same page, a quote from Williams reads, Science in war is the guarantee of peace. The facing page is titled Step 2. Do the research. Look for possible solutions. The text reads, Jonathan Williams had already researched the best locations for forts in New York Harbor. What he needed was a good design. He looked for a solution in the work of Marc Quinet, Marquis de Montalembert, 1714-1800, a French engineer who had written about circular forts as a defense against powerful warships. Using Montalembert's ideas, Williams came up with a design for the castle. A portrait of the Marquis from the 1700s in a powdered wig and decorated French military uniform is at the left. A quote from the Marquis reads, Every battery that can be approached within 300 yards should be built entirely of masonry and casemated. Such batteries should be in several tiers, like the vessels with which they have to deal. The pieces should be at similar intervals, and then it will be the vessels and not the batteries that will have anything to fear. At the bottom of the page, two drawings by Jonathan Williams show locations in the area and distances between regions. Please turn the page. The next page in the flipbook is titled, Step 3. Make a Decision. At the right, a design plan of the castle's first tier shows the round shape, with the pointed entrance area that Williams chose. The text reads, With research in hand and inspired by the work of a French military engineer, Williams acted. He chose to create a multi-level circular fort out of stone and brick. It would have casemates or protected rooms for guns. Another illustration shows the castle's rounded arches, 
which were designed in such a way as to prevent complete structural failure should the castle be hit by enemy cannon. The last page of the flipbook is titled, Step 4, Present the Final Product. The text reads, Castle Williams took four years to build. When the War of 1812 started, Jonathan Williams asked the U.S. Navy to test it by taking two ships and firing at it. The fort was barely damaged. Soon after, he resigned when the Army declined to appoint him to command the fort named after him. He was later appointed Brigadier General of the Militia protecting New York Harbor. He died in 1815. Williams Castle would inspire other fortification designs. Because of engineers like him, the United States coastal defense system would protect its harbors and forts for a century. Today, many of these forts are preserved by the National Park Service. Three illustrations show other forts built in a similar style to Castle Williams during the same period. The first shows Staten Island's Fort Richmond, which used granite in the same all-masonry stacked tier construction style. The next shows Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, South Carolina. It, too, has three tiers of casemates in all-masonry construction. The final illustration shows Fort Pickens at Pensacola Bay, Florida. Like Castle Williams, it had casemates. To continue your tour, turn with your back to the flipbook display and move directly forward about six to eight steps until you encounter a brick wall. The doorway is located just to the right of the wall's center. Pass through this doorway and into the next room. The next exhibit, with an example of the castle's block building material, is titled Built by Skilled Hands and is located directly ahead in the center of the room. When you get there, enter the number four on your audio guide keypad. Track 4. Built by Skilled Hands. About two and a half minutes. In the center of the room is a touchable sample of sandstone, like that used to build Castle Williams. Please note, other than for necessary guidance for visitors with visual impairments, we ask visitors to not touch the walls, since the original sandstone is easily damaged. Continuing to the far side of the tactile display is an exhibit panel titled, Built by Skilled Hands. The text reads, Colonel Jonathan Williams designed Castle Williams. The firm of Souter and Hilliard oversaw its construction. Masons, carpenters, and blacksmiths built it. Their names are not known, but the fort is the legacy of their skill and effort. To the right are four woodcut illustrations that represent four of the trades needed to build Castle Williams. Bricklayers laid the bricks in the walls and vaulted ceilings of the casemates. Carpenters constructed scaffolding as well as the castle's doors and plank floorboards. Blacksmiths hammered the wrought iron hardware used in hinges, and stonemasons cut and finished rough cord blocks into relatively smooth and uniform walls. Your audio described door continues at the next exhibit, located in the next casemate, entitled Becoming American Immigrant Recruits. To get there, turn with your back to the built by skilled hands display and move forward about 30 feet. This time, the opening between the rooms is about 16 feet wide. As an alternative, you can follow the contours of the exterior wall of the castle, found a few steps directly to your right, if you're facing away from the last display. When you enter the next room and reach the exterior wall, find the center point between the room's embrasures, window-like openings. Then turn with your back to the wall and take about six to eight steps towards the center of the room. Please keep in mind as you move from room to room, you can always use this alternative method of following the exterior wall to reach the next exhibit. Regardless of which way you choose to get to the next location, when you get there, enter the number five on your audio guide keypad. Track 5. Becoming American. Immigrant Recruits. Just over two minutes. The panel text reads, Starting in 1852, Army recruits lived in Castle Williams' upper tiers. Among them were many recent immigrants. Recruitment posters like these held out the promise that service in the U.S. Army or Navy could make them more American. At the right are four examples of Civil War-era recruiting posters. Early on in the war, regiments were formed to appeal to different ethnic groups. Three of the example posters, German, Italian, and Irish, include a mix of the group's native language and English. The Irish flyer's text is printed entirely in the color green. A quote taken from Harper's Weekly magazine in May of 1861 reads, Every day, from 25 to 50 men arrive at Governor's Island from the various recruiting offices in New York and elsewhere, and are immediately drilled in squads until they are fit to be formed into companies and drafted into regiments. At the lower left, the display text continues with a sidebar section titled, Then and Now. The text reads, By the 1840s, half of all military recruits were immigrants. During the Civil War, almost a quarter of all Union soldiers were immigrants. Most were German or Irish, with other newcomers from England, Canada, France, Norway, Italy, Mexico, and Poland. Today, about 5% of active-duty personnel were born outside the United States. Most are from Latin America and the Caribbean. This exhibit includes a turnwheel, titled A Day in the Life, that offers more information about life at the castle during the Civil War. For description, instructions, and to hear the captions read aloud, please press the green button now. The green button is located two rows above the five on your audio guide keypad.
To continue your tour, move to the opposite side of this display to a panel titled Looking Outside from the Inside. When you're ready, enter the number 6 on your audio guide keypad. Audio track layer, a day in the life, about two and a half minutes. The text reads, During the Civil War, new recruits, among them recent immigrants, lived side by side with Confederate prisoners, Union deserters, and spies. What was daily life at Castle Williams like? In the top left of the display, a window cut into the exhibit reveals an image and caption of daily events and activities that took place at the castle. At the bottom edge of the display is a turnwheel that rotates through four images in the window. For each one, we'll identify the activity. Briefly describe the image, and then read the caption. First image. Eating. An archival photo shows a group of men sitting or standing around a makeshift table, set with metal plates and cups. White canvas tents can be seen in the background. The caption reads, This image from Fort Monroe, a Union prisoner of war camp in Virginia, suggests what mealtime may have looked like. Typical fare was pork or bacon, bread or hardtack, beans, rice, coffee, tea, and molasses. Second image. Drilling. An illustration shows a small group of soldiers standing at attention on the side of a military parade ground. In the distance, an American flag flies over a building. Nearby, a soldier salutes a higher-ranking officer. The caption reads, Recruits trained on the grounds of Fort J before leaving for war. Third image, doing laundry. In the illustration, a bearded man, not wearing any pants, washes his pants in a washtub. Nearby, water boils in a large kettle over an open fire, while another man uses a paddle to beat the dirt from the clothes. The caption reads, this image from Point Lookout, a Union prison camp in Maryland, suggests what doing laundry entailed. At Castle Williams, recruits and prisoners likely drew their water from a pump in the courtyard. Final image. Sleeping. An illustration shows the dark interior of a casemate, with cannons and tools for firing, distributed about the room. The caption reads, The recruits bedded down in the casemates, alongside the cannon that had been installed for the War of 1812. Your audio described tour continues on the opposite side of this display, at a panel titled, Looking Outside from the Inside. When you're there, enter the number 6 on your audio guide keypad. Track 6, Looking Outside from the Inside, Just Under 2 Minutes A background photo, taken from the courtyard around the turn of the 20th century, looks up at the sky beyond the castle's stone walls. An inset photo shows a man in partial silhouette through prison bars. He looks across the harbor towards Manhattan. The text reads, Prisoners at Castle Williams lived in casemates. The dark, damp, bomb-proof vaults had been built in 1811 to house cannon. After the Civil War, the Army removed the guns and later added heat, running water, and electricity. This display also includes a turnwheel that offers more information about the changing harbor outside of the prison's walls. For description and instructions, as well as to hear the captions read aloud, please press the green button now. The green button is located two rows above the five on your audio guide keypad. If you'd prefer to continue to the next exhibit, turn with your back to the looking outside from the inside display panel and move forward about 30 feet. Again. You will pass through the casemate's wide opening into the next room. When you reach the exhibit, move a few steps to your left. The next audio track starts at the panel titled, The Model Prison. When you get there, enter the number 7 on your audio guide keypad. Audio track layer, The Changing Harbor, just under two and a half minutes. In the top left of the display, a window cut into the exhibit reveals an historic image and caption four views that prisoners could see from the castle. At the bottom edge of the display is a turnwheel that rotates through four images in the window. For each, we'll briefly describe the image and then read the caption. First image, a color photograph taken around 1905, shows the Statue of Liberty. The caption reads, In 1886, prisoners could have watched the Statue of Liberty rise in New York Harbor. Second image, a steam-powered paddlewheel boat churns up the East River past a tall suspension bridge. The text reads, by 1883, prisoners could see the new Brooklyn Bridge, and later, just beyond it, a bridge to Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Like the castle, Williamsburg was named for Jonathan Williams, who surveyed the area in the early 1800s. Third image, an iconic photo of a man holding a bowler hat on his head to prevent the wind from blowing it away. In the distance is an image of an early airplane. The caption reads, In September 1909, prisoners watched Wilbur Wright in his Model A flyer soar around the harbor and circle the Statue of Liberty. It was the first flight over U.S. waters. Fourth and final image. A black and white photo taken from the manicured edge of Governor's Island, framed by young trees and looking across the harbor to the tall buildings of New York City. The caption reads, From Castle Williams, prisoners could gaze at Manhattan's ever-changing skyline. If you'd prefer to continue to the next exhibit, turn with your back to the looking outside from the inside display panel and move forward about 30 feet. Again, 
You will pass through the casemate's wide opening into the next room. When you reach the exhibit, move a few steps to your left. The next audio track starts at the display panel titled The Model Prison. When you get there, enter the number 7 on your audio guide keypad. Track 7. The Model Prison. About three and a half minutes. The subtitle for this panel poses the question, How good should life behind bars be? The text continues. Attitudes about prisons changed with the times. In the 1800s, many believed that prisoners should work hard, alone, and in silence. By the early 1900s, opinions changed, and many felt that education and rehabilitation were the keys to changing the offenders' lives. In 1903, the Army made Castle Williams a model prison. Across the front of the hip-high display panel are three lift doors, with a tab at the front lower edge. Above them, the question is asked, which one of these activities was not part of the model prison at Castle Williams? Lift the doors to find out. When the door is lifted, the answer is revealed. For each door, we'll identify the activity, briefly describe the image on the door's surface, then answer the question, beginning from left to right. First door, listening to music. On the face of the door is a World War I-era advertisement for New Victor Records' patriotic music. In the foreground, a group of soldiers sit on a dock, watching a steamship leave the harbor. The answer beneath the door reads, Inmates did have music. In fact, they purchased a record player, known as a Victrola, with money they made taking in laundry. Center door. Trips to see the Brooklyn Dodgers. A black-and-white photo from 1914 shows well-dressed men, all in coats, ties, and fashionable hats, sitting in a grandstand. The answer reads, Inmates did not join the crowd on opening day at Ebbets Field, but they did have their own baseball team and played civilian teams from New York City. Third door. Typing classes. A black-and-white photo shows a young woman, around the turn of the 19th century, sitting beside a manual typewriter. The answer reads, Prisoners could take typing and stenography classes. They were offered through the YMCA and were likely taught by female volunteers. To the right of the horizontal display panel is a tall vertical panel titled Looking Inside from the Outside. A historic sepia-toned background photo in shades of brown and tan shows Castle Williams from the outside. The text reads, New Yorkers rarely got a glimpse of life inside Castle Williams. When an inmate tried to escape, though, the story often appeared in the next day's papers. It was a reminder to the city that the Sentinel in the harbor was no longer a fort, but a prison. Across the panel are five newspaper clippings, each describing the events of a prisoner's escape or escape and recapture. To hear excerpts read aloud, please press the green button now. The green button is located two rows above the five on your audio guide keypad. If you'd prefer to continue your tour, move around to the opposite side of this exhibit to the next horizontal display. It too has three flip doors on its surface and is titled, Was There a Cure? When you get there, enter the number eight on your audio guide keypad. Audio track layer. Newspaper clippings about prisoner escapes. Just under two minutes. The following three examples were all reported in the New York Times. Sample number one, date April 3rd, 1901. Headline. Prisoner from Castle Williams makes daring dash for freedom. James Ryan of Company K, 7th Artillery, who is at present serving a military sentence in Castle Williams, became possessed of an uncontrollable desire to be free. He arranged to procure a suit of citizen's clothes and donning this, succeeded to pass the sentinels without being challenged. Sample number two, date June 10th, 1901. Headline, Army Prisoners Escape. Sometime between 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon and 7 o'clock last evening, two United States Army prisoners who were serving sentences in Castle Williams for desertion escaped. They embarked upon an improvised raft and drifted away from the island on the strong flood time in Buttermilk Channel. It has been learned by the Army officials that the men were picked up by a tugboat and landed in New York. Sample number three, date April 8th, 1935. Headline, Fails to find the Duke. Officials at the castle on Governor's Island are still without word from the Duke, a title assumed by Private Virgil F. Gill, who escaped Saturday night, leaving behind four and one-half years of an unfinished ten-year term for impersonating an officer. Your tour continues on the opposite side of this exhibit at the next horizontal display. It too has three flip doors on its surface and is titled, Was There a Cure? When you get there, enter the number eight on your audio guide keypad. Track eight. Was there a cure? About two and a half minutes. At the left, the panel text reads, Over the course of the Civil War, from the years 1861 through 1865, 620,000 soldiers died. One-third of them died in battle. Two-thirds died of disease. Illness was spread by dirt, contaminated water, rats, flies, uncooked meat, and human contact. To the right of the horizontal display, a vertical panel is titled with a quote from William Sloan, a United States Army surgeon. His quote reads, Deaths occur almost daily. The panel text continues. There were poor conditions in many prisoner-of-war camps and holding facilities during the Civil War. Castle Williams was no exception. 
Food, blankets, and clothing were in short supply. There was little medicine and only one doctor for hundreds of men. Some prisoners were transferred to Bedloe's Island, which is now Liberty Island, for medical care. Some died. Confederate soldiers who died while imprisoned were buried on Governor's Island. In 1886, their remains were moved to Cypress Hills National Cemetery in Brooklyn. On the far right is a partial list of names of Confederate enlisted prisoners who died at Castle Williams. Another quote, this from prisoner Lieutenant Alonzo Etheridge Bell of North Carolina reads, October 7, 1861. Two men at the castle died today, John Collins of our company and one of the Hamilton guards. Their death is much felt among the men. The thought of dying away from home is indeed a very sad thing. Across the front of the hip-high horizontal display panel are three lift doors. These offer information about some of the deadly diseases that affected the men. To hear a description in their text read aloud, please press the green button now. The green button is located two rows above the five on your audio guide keypad. To continue your tour, turn with your back to the flip doors and again move forward about 30 feet through the wide opening and into the next casemate. The next exhibit titled, Preserving the Past for the Future, is located in the middle of the next room. When you get there, please enter the number nine on your audio guide keypad. Audio track layer. Was there a cure? Flip doors. Just under three minutes. To the left of the flip doors, a caption reads, Lift the doors to find out if these common Civil War diseases were curable. Each door includes the name of a disease, its cause and symptoms, and the question, Was there a cure? When the door is lifted, the answer is revealed. For each door, we'll provide the information on the surface and then answer the question, beginning from left to right. First door, the disease, dysentery. The cause, coming into contact with food or water contaminated with bacteria or amoeba cysts. Symptoms include bloody diarrhea, fever, nausea, and stomach cramps. Was there a cure? No. Common treatments for this number one killer were lead acetate, sulfuric acid, calomel, and silver nitrate. None worked. Today, antibiotics can kill the bacteria that cause dysentery. In many parts of the world, though, where clean water and medical care are scarce, dysentery is still a killer. Center door, the disease, typhoid. The cause, drinking water or eating food contaminated with salmonella bacteria. Symptoms include high fever, headaches, pains, poor appetite, diarrhea, and lethargy. Was there a cure? No. Common treatments were turpentine, quinine, and lead and mercury-based medicines. None worked. Vaccinations developed in the early 1900s combined with antibiotics helped fight the spread and impact of this disease. Third flip door. The disease. Pneumonia. The cause. Bacteria spread by unsanitary conditions. Symptoms include cough, often with mucus, fever, chills, shallow breathing, chest pain, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and rapid dehydration. Was there a cure? No. Common treatments included bleeding, where doctors tried to cleanse a patient's blood by opening up their veins. Other treatments included alcohol, opium, and quinine. None worked, and bleeding was often fatal. Today, doctors use antibiotics to treat some forms of pneumonia, and a vaccine offers immunization against some strains of the disease. To continue your tour, turn with your back to the flip doors and again move forward about 30 feet through the wide opening and into the next casemate. The next exhibit, titled Preserving the Past for the Future, is located in the middle of the room. When you get there, please enter the number 9 on your audio guide keypad. Track 9. Preserving the Past for the Future. About two and a half minutes. The dominant photo of this display shows three men, all wearing hard hats, preserving the masonry on the exterior of the castle's stone walls. The skyscrapers of modern Manhattan can be seen in the distance. The panel text reads, When Jonathan Williams built the castle, it was state-of-the-art. Time and a harsh maritime environment have taken their toll. The National Park Service conducts research, creates programs, and works with partners to preserve the castle and its materials. With care, this place will be able to tell its story for generations to come. If you want to know more about the future of Castle Williams, visit our website at www.nps.gov. Beneath the main image are photos of an embrasure, or an opening in the exterior wall like a window, that are in the process of being preserved. The top photo shows deterioration of a lintel, the stone across the top of the embrasure. The next images show the work in process, with wood bracing supporting the embrasure opening. The final photo shows the finished project with a new lintel in place. On the right side of the display, the panel text reads, Take action. Save our history. Preservation is about deciding what is important, figuring out how to protect it, and passing along an appreciation for what was saved to the next generation. We can all help preserve the past. Structures like Castle Williams, as well as photographs, diaries, and recordings, reveal stories about people, places, and communities. Please continue around to the opposite side of this exhibit. 
Once there, under the plexiglass cover display window titled, Add Your Voice, you'll find a hip-high shelf along with paper and pencils. We invite you to take a moment and share your thoughts about Castle Williams. When you're done, drop your comment in the slot found at the upper left-hand corner of the shelf. Park rangers collect the comments, and some will be added to the display window. The next exhibit is located in the same casemate, directly across from the Add Your Voice display. To get there, turn with your back to the shelf, and move about three to four steps forward. The next exhibit is titled, The Changing Faces of the Governor's Island Community. When you're ready, enter the number 10 on your audio guide keypad. Track 10, The Changing Face of the Governor's Island Community. Just over three and a half minutes. At the top of the exhibit panel is a 1966 photo of the Governor's Island Dodgers baseball team. A group of boys, their coaches, standing proudly behind them, hose in their Dodgers uniforms. The caption reads, the 1930 census for the Army post at Fort J counted a community of over 3,000 soldiers, officers, and families living on Governor's Island, a number that remained constant until the Coast Guard left in 1996. The island had its own elementary school, youth sports teams, and Boy Scout and Girl Scout troops. Below, additional photos illustrate life changing on the island. The dominant photo shows African-American soldiers in 1917, labor battalion troops, standing in front of the barracks at Fort J. Other photos include a sepia-toned image of a general's family, taken around 1912. A 1964 photo shows another family, this one with younger children, gathered around a Thanksgiving Day meal. Farther down the panel is an image of children, sledding down a snow-dusted hill. In a modern photo, Civil War reenactors, dressed as Union soldiers, posed with a cannon. The final two photos show visitors clapping and dancing, while enjoying some of the many concerts, festivals, art exhibits, and cultural events held on the island today. The panel text reads, Military personnel are almost always on the move. The chance to create a community on Governor's Island that was more than fleeting, as was done by the U.S. Army and then the Coast Guard, was impressive. Today, the island, administered by the Trust for Governor's Island and the National Park Service, is a gathering place for many different communities coming together to recreate, celebrate the arts, and enjoy culture and history. These are some of the island's changing faces. Please continue around to the opposite side of this exhibit. The other side is titled, Small Town Life on an Island Home. The text reads, for more than 150 years, U.S. Army and Coast Guard families called Governor's Island home for the short tours of duty. From the 1930s to its closing in 1996, this was a community of 3,000 service men and women, spouses and children. Coast Guard and their families enjoyed the same sense of community and military prestige as Army families did before them, a blend of small-town life at the edge of one of America's largest cities. Mounted to this display panel is a hand-operated audio kiosk that plays audio interviews from four people who once lived on Governor's Island. For instructions on how to operate the kiosk, press the green button now. The green button is located two rows above the five on your audio guide keypad. If you'd prefer to continue your audio described tour, the next exhibit is located outside in the courtyard. To get there, turn 90 degrees to your right and move forward until you come to the castle's interior brick wall. Follow the contours of the wall to the left until you come to this casemate's door. Turn right and move directly forward into the courtyard. The next exhibit is located about 20 feet in front of you, about 5 feet to the right. When you get there, move to the right side of the display to the panel titled Experience Your America. When you're ready, enter the number 11 on your audio guide keypad. Audio Track Layer Island Home Audio Kiosk About 2 minutes The kiosk is a metal box with 4 push buttons across the front edge and a hand crank on its front. The caption reads Crank the handle and press a button to hear memories of Castle Williams and life on Governor's Island. From left to right, the interviewees are Josephine Hardy Wanderling, an Italian translator who met her future husband, an Italian prisoner of war during World War II when he was imprisoned on Governor's Island. Mark Ramey, an army dependent who lived on Governor's Island from 1953 to 1956, when Castle Williams was a military prison. Here he recalls a fishing trip just under its windows. Kay Stevens a Coast Guard dependent who moved to Governor's Island in 1969 when she was 14. She recalls the teen club that the Coast Guard set up. Admiral James Gracie, the first Coast Guard official on Governor's Island when they took charge in 1966. To listen, turn the crank for about 30 seconds, then press any button. The audio will play through the kiosk's loudspeaker. After you've listened to your selections, the next exhibit is located outside in the courtyard. To get there, you'll turn 90 degrees to your right, then move forward until you come to the castle's interior brick wall. You will follow the contours of the wall to the left until you come to this casemate's door. From there, turn right, then move directly forward into the courtyard. The next exhibit will be located about 20 feet in front of you, about 5 feet to the right. When you get there, 
Move to the right side of the display to the panel titled Experience Your America. When you're ready, enter the number 11 on your audio guide keypad. Track 11. Experience Your America. Just over four and a half minutes. A series of photographs show Castle Williams and Governor's Island activities today. The dominant image depicts a uniformed female park ranger standing with three smiling early teenage children, two girls and a boy, each proudly displaying a junior ranger badge. The caption reads, The National Park Service has a variety of programs for youth on Governor's Island. The most popular is the Junior Ranger Program. Additional images include visitors disembarking from the ferry, a tour group inside Castle Williams, and smiling high school students from the Urban Assembly New York Harbor School on a sailing excursion. The panel's primary text reads, Castle Williams was built between 1807 and 1811 to defend New York City from foreign attack. Its story of changing use, as housing, as a prison, and as a community center, hold important lessons about adaptability and usefulness. The text continues. Like the island, the castle has evolved over time, finding new uses to meet changing needs of those it serves. From protecting the city and the nation, to becoming an oasis in an urban environment where history, culture, and the environment are celebrated, both the castle and the island have new missions, opening their doors to the local, national, and a global community. The story continues. Please move to the opposite side of the exhibit. This display is titled, From Prison to Community Center, The Coast Guard Era, 1966-1996. through 1996. The text reads, Castle Williams' life as a military prison ended in 1966 when the Army left Governor's Island. Soon after, the Coast Guard made the island its base and adapted the former fort to suit new needs. Inside its stone casemates, they created a short-lived community center, daycare, and later, storage space. There are several photos from the Coast Guard era on the panel, including a black-and-white image of young people dancing in 1970. The caption reads, For a short time, the castle housed a teen club. A quote from Coast Guard dependent Kay Stevens says, Here, we're probably dancing to Purple Haze. Another black-and-white photo shows the island's pier in 1971, with several Coast Guard vessels moored at the dock. The Manhattan skyline is clearly visible in the distance, with the World Trade Center's twin towers rising high above the other buildings. At that time, Governor's Island was the largest Coast Guard base in the world. To the right is a quote from then-commander, and later Admiral James Gracie, when he was the chief executive officer of the Coast Guard's base New York. The quote reads, People from headquarters would come up and they would be contemplating how we were going to tear down Castle Williams to make more space. To which I would respond, Sir, if you'll forgive me, it's a historical landmark. You can't tear it down. We inherited this spacious building and we decided we ought to do something with it. We converted it to a recreation center. We never did figure out what to do with the solitary confinement cells, except they were great storage places. An angled shelf extends from the front of the exhibit titled, Moving On. The dominant image says a man removing a nameplate from a building directory. The text reads, Since the 1790s, there has been a military community on Governor's Island. Like the U.S. Army before it in 1966, a change in mission required the Coast Guard to close its base. For many, it was a sad time. To the right is a newspaper clipping from the island's newspaper, the Governor's Island Gazette, from October of 1995. The headline reads, Coast Guard will close Governor's Island. A quote from Coast Guard Lieutenant Shulman from the same article is printed in the upper right-hand corner of the display. It reads, we live in a small-town atmosphere in the middle of the largest, busiest metropolitan area in the world. Sure we'll miss it. The audio-described tour continues at the next panel, titled From Fort to Prison. To get there, turn with your back to the shelf display and move forward and slightly to your right, about 30 feet. For your information, you will be following the inside curve of the courtyard. When you reach the next exhibit, enter the number 12 on your audio guide keypad. Track 12, From Fort to Prison, The Civil War. 1861 through 1865, about two minutes. The panel text reads, Everyone thought the Civil War would end quickly. They were wrong. Both the North and South were unprepared to house growing numbers of prisoners. To solve the problem, Castle Williams, like other forts in New York Harbor, became a temporary prisoner of war camp. It housed enlisted men in numbers that ranged from five to 1,100, while nearby Fort Jay housed captured Confederate officers. Eventually, all prisoners were taken to Fort Warren in Boston or other prisons around the country. Two Civil War-era portraits are found near the center of the display, one of enlisted Union soldier Lucius Barber, and the other of Confederate officer Alonzo Etheridge Bell. In 1865, while awaiting his next assignment, Barber briefly stayed at the castle. A quote from Barber reads, We were assigned quarters in the second story, already crowded almost to suffocation. In our apartment were recruits, exchanged prisoners, furloughed men, and rebel prisoners. Our quarters now would shame a hog pen. Mounted to the front of the exhibit is another audio kiosk like the one described previously on the tour. The caption reads, 
Crank the handle and press a button to hear the voices and sounds of Castle Williams during the Civil War. After portrayals read excerpts from four men's memoirs of their experiences on Governor's Island, the previously mentioned Lucius Barber and Alonzo Bell, as well as Confederate Captain Thomas Sparrow. The fourth excerpt is from an 1865 New York Times article that describes the execution of Union Army deserter James Devlin. If you'd like, take a moment and listen to these Civil War-era stories. If you'd prefer to continue your audio-described tour, please move to the opposite side of this exhibit to the panel titled, Doing Time. When you're ready, enter the number 13 on your audio guide keypad. Track 13, Doing Time. Just under three minutes. The background photo on this display shows the castle's courtyard around 1916. The casemates' entrances are all enclosed with wood walls, many of their doors standing open. A group of seven men stand casually on the perimeter, while uniformed guards watch from the second-tier balcony. The panel text reads, After the Civil War ended in 1865, the Army continued to use Castle Williams as a prison, and until 1878 to house recruits. Between the late 1870s and early 1900s, plumbing, heating, and electricity were added. In 1915, Castle Williams was made a branch of the Fort Leavenworth Disciplinary Barracks. Until the Army left in 1966, Castle Williams held several hundred inmates at any one time. Most were imprisoned for minor offenses. In the lower center portion of the panel, two black and white photos show the interior of the prison. The caption reads, Taken in 1983, these photographs show one of the prison cells in the third tier and an isolation cell. The prison cell photo shows a cell door made of steel bars with chipped and peeling paint standing open in front of a dark room. The isolation cell photo shows a small room about seven feet wide by ten feet deep enclosed with painted steel walls, a sink and toilet sit in one corner, while a steel bed frame hangs from the wall with chains. In the lower right, the black and white photos continue. The first shows a shirtless man from the shoulders up, with dark hair and eyes, looking directly into the camera. The caption reads, After going AWOL or absent without leave during World War II, midweight boxer Rocky Graziano was briefly imprisoned at Castle Williams. In the final photo, a group of men, some wearing World War I uniforms, all wearing coats and hats, escort a man down the street. The caption reads, Grover Cleveland Bergdahl was a famous World War I draft dodger. Confined to Castle Williams, he escaped and fled to Germany. He was captured again and sent back to the castle. Your audio described tour continues at the next exhibit titled, From Innovative to Obsolete. To get there, turn with your back to the Doing Time exhibit and move directly forward and slightly to your right about 30 feet. Again, you will be following the inside curve of the courtyard, but this time you will pass on your left the circular brick wall that encloses the stairway to the castle's upper tiers. When you reach the next exhibit, Enter the number 14 on your audio guide keypad. Track 14, From Innovative to Obsolete, Just Under Three Minutes. At the left is a quote from Thomas Jefferson in 1776. It reads, There shall be no standing army, but in time of actual war. The panel text continues. The United States was suspicious of keeping a large standing army, so when the War of 1812 ended, soldiers went home. With Castle Williams no longer a vital fortification, an army post began to grow up around it. While less important in later years, the castle would be maintained for readiness until the 1880s. In the mid-1800s, the army began to use the upper level of the castle as a barracks to house recruits and later Civil War prisoners. Castle Williams' days as a front-line defender of New York City were over. At the upper left, a watercolor image depicts Castle Williams as a harbor landmark during a time of peace. Paddlewheel boats and tall masted sailing ships glide past the castle on still blue water. Extending from the front of this panel is an ankle display shelf that holds two replicas of cannonballs. Please use care when touching the items. They are painted black and may become very warm, even hot, to the touch. The item on the left is a 32-pound cannonball called a shot, from the 1812 era. On the right, significantly larger, is a Civil War era shot, which weighs 400 pounds. The caption reads, Feel the large 1860-era cannonball. This is the type of shot used in one of the castle's Rodman guns, which were placed on the castle's roof during the Civil War. The shot weighs about 400 pounds. The small shot, which weighs about as much as a toddler, can be lifted. A graphic at the left illustrates the difference in firing distance between the two different cannonballs. The smaller 32-pound shot had an average distance of just over one mile. The 400-pound shot had an effective range of over three and a half miles. On the left side of this exhibit is a pull-out panel titled Teamwork that shows the many men and positions it took to fire one of the castle's massive guns. For more description of this pull-out panel, press the green button now. Found two rows above the five on your audio guide keypad. If you'd rather continue your tour, please move to the opposite side of this exhibit to a panel titled, Built to Defend City. Once you're there, enter the number 15 on your audio guide keypad. Audio Track Layer Teamwork Panel 
about two and a half minutes. The primary text reads, During the Civil War, the Army mounted massive Rodman guns on the castle's roof, called a barbette, in case Confederate ships or their allies tried to attack New York City. The Rodman guns, which were made specifically for coastal fortifications like Castle Williams, were never used. However, the fort soldiers would have had to know how to fire them just in case. To load a gun, a crew had to work together as a team. Each person had a role in charging, loading, aiming, and firing. The photo below was taken in 1861 at Alcatraz Island in San Francisco. It shows the number of men needed to fire a 15-inch Rodman gun. Fourteen uniformed men stand near a massive cannon. The gun itself appears to be about 15 feet long and is mounted on tracks, so four men can roll the 15,000-pound gun forward and backwards. The entire carriage is further mounted on a round concrete pad that allows the gun to be turned in different directions. One man, the gunner, stands on the apparatus directly behind the cannon. He is the soldier in charge of the gun who gives the orders to load and fire. In front of the barrel, two men use a sponge rammer to extinguish any embers and clear up debris before loading the next round of gunpowder and shot into the barrel. In the foreground, two men stand near a protective box that holds the 50 pounds of gunpowder needed to fire the gun. Nearby, four others prepare to carry the 400-pound cannonball to the barrel and hoist it in. Other men have duties that include using pry bars to move the iron wheels under the carriage and inserting the fuse into the gun's vent or a hole in the barrel. Numerous other tasks are performed by the team in the process of firing the massive weapon. Your tour continues on the opposite side of this exhibit. The panel is titled, Built to Defend a City. When you're ready, enter the number 15 on your audio guide keypad. Track 15, Built to Defend a City. About three minutes. On the left side of the panel, a watercolor illustration shows how the castle appeared around 1820, a decade after it was built. The stone fortress sits at the rocky edge of Governor's Island. Hundreds of sailing ships are anchored in the harbor's choppy waters. The primary text reads, in 1807, as tensions with Great Britain grew, the United States built up its coastal defenses. In New York, the federal government funded a system of forts in the harbor. One of them was Castle Williams. Completed in 1811, it was strong, innovative, and heavily armed. Along with other forts, it helped to deter an attack on the city. At the right, an etching from around 1778 shows British royal troops, in their distinctive red coats, triumphantly marching through the streets of New York. Above the image, the panel text reads, New Yorkers had long feared that foreign powers would attack their city by sea. In September 1776, their fears were realized. The British sailed hundreds of warships into New York Harbor and routed the Continental Army in the Battle of Brooklyn. British troops occupied the city for seven long years. The memory of that invasion and occupation spurred the country to action. A new series of forts, including Castle Williams, would protect New York. In the lower center of the panel is a copy of the United States Declaration of War, dated November 4, 1812. Three years later, the U.S. declare victory. On the lower right side of this exhibit, the text reads, War of 1812. Should the British Navy attack New York? Imagine your Vice Admiral Sir Alexander Cochrane of the British Royal Navy. Your country is at war with the United States. Do you try to capture New York City in a repeat of 1776? Or is sailing into the harbor just too risky at this time? Pull out the panel to weigh your options. There is a pull-out panel on the right side of this display. For more description and to hear the answers to the questions just asked, Press the green button now. Found two rows above the five on your audio guide keypad. If you'd prefer to skip this pull-out panel and continue your audio-described tour, the next exhibit is located in the center of the castle's courtyard. To get there, face the Built to Defend a City exhibit and turn 90 degrees to your left. The castle's exterior will be behind you. Move directly forward about 50 feet. In the exact center of the courtyard is a round display that holds a touchable scale model of Castle Williams. When you get there, enter the number 16 on your audio guide keypad. Audio track layer. Should the British Navy attack New York? Pull-out panel. About three and a half minutes. At the lower right of the pull-out panel is a map that shows the New York Harbor region including Manhattan, Brooklyn, New Jersey, and the Atlantic Ocean. The six primary fortifications that protect the harbor, including Castle Williams where you are now, are shown on the map along with their overlapping ranges of defense. At the left are three options available to Sir Cochrane, along with the pros and cons of each. Along the bottom of the panel are the answers regarding Cochrane's decision. We'll present each option its pros and cons, and the answer to the question, should you attack? Option number one. Sail through Long Island Sound and Hellgate, then down the East River to Manhattan. Pros. There are no major fortifications along the way. Cons. Hellgate. Located near the Robert F. Kennedy Triborough Bridge was a good name for this twisting passage. In 1812, the currents were fast, and there were large, submerged rocks. Should you attack? Answer. Nice thought. 
but there are way too many rocks. The British ship HMS Hussar sank in Hellgate in 1780 when it tried to navigate through the dangerous passage. The second option is to approach through the Narrows. Sail as many of your ships past the forts in the harbor as you can. Be willing to sacrifice some in hopes that a few will get through. Pros. The passage is direct and the channels are good. Cons. You will have to face several forts firing at you at once, and from both sides. In other words, you must sail through a deadly field of fire. Are you really willing to sacrifice most of your ships? Answer. Maybe you should reconsider. The forts in New York Harbor work as a system. Their guns can send shots some 2,000 yards, about the length of 20 football fields, and you will be in the middle. Plus, if the wind dies down, your sailing ship will be an easy target. The third option is to skip it. The chances of success are too slim. Pros. If your ships are intact, you can blockade New York Harbor and attack other cities. Cons. New York City has a superb harbor. You need it to unload armies and supplies and take over the country. Answer. This is what Lord Cochrane did. The British Navy never attacked New York City during the War of 1812. Instead, Cochrane blockaded the Atlantic coast and sent the British Navy south to raid the Chesapeake Bay in 1814 to burn Washington, D.C. and capture Baltimore, Maryland. Baltimore was successfully defended by Fort McHenry, and that battle, the inspiration for the Star-Spangled Banner, the national anthem. The next exhibit is located in the center of the castle's courtyard. To get there, face the built to defend a city exhibit and turn 90 degrees to your left. The castle's exterior will be behind you. Move directly forward about 50 feet. In the exact center of the courtyard is a round display that holds a touchable scale model of Castle Williams. When you get there, enter the number 16 on your audio guide keypad. Track 16. Castle Williams Touchable Scale Model. About a minute and a half. In the center of this round display is an exact model of Castle Williams, complete with cutaways of select areas, set in the building's exact orientation. The touchable model represents the fort as it appeared after its completion in 1811. Please use caution when touching the model due to the fact that the surface area can get very warm, and on some days possibly hot. As mentioned at the beginning of the tour, the castle is round with one right angle, shaped a bit like a point. Indeed, it is currently pointing directly towards the castle's main entrance and exit. Surrounding the model is a circular shelf display with text and images. This display includes a considerable amount of information about Castle Liam's history and construction, as well as a section about terms used in fortifications. If you'd like to hear descriptions in the text read aloud, Please press the green button now. The green button is found two rows above the five on your audio guide keypad. If you'd prefer to skip this information and conclude your audio described tour of Castle Williams now, enter the number 17 on your audio guide keypad. Audio track layer. Castle Williams model display shelf. About five and a half minutes. Starting at the model castle's point, which will serve as the six o'clock point on this exhibit, this audio track will continue counterclockwise around the display. The first image, at the 6 o'clock point, is a drawing of the castle's casemates from 1839. Inside the model you can see and feel the arched entryways that indicate the entrance to a casemate. At approximately the 9 o'clock position, a cutaway in the model reveals the interior of a casemate. The text reads, The core of Castle Williams was a system of chambers called casemates. These bomb-proof vaults protected troops and provided the support to build multiple tiers or levels. Instead of one battery of guns on the roof, cannon could be placed on each tier, the extra firepower was more effective against warships with multiple decks of guns. At the 4 o'clock position is an inset image of an embrasure, one of the castle's window-like openings to the exterior. The text reads, Castle William's guns were installed within its casemates. Each gun fired through one of the 78 embrasures or openings in the walls. You can see and feel the embrasures on the exterior of the model. At the 3 o'clock position is a list of facts titled Castle William's by the numbers. The information says, Construction began in 1807 and was completed in 1811. The castle has three tiers, is 40 feet high and 200 feet in diameter. The average depth of the exterior walls is 8 feet at the base and 7 feet at the top. It includes 39 casemates, 78 embrasures and could accommodate 103 guns. The number of times its guns were fired in combat? Zero. The information presented in the 12 o'clock position is titled, The Designer, a portrait of Jonathan Williams in uniform from 1815. In the background of the image stands Castle Williams, his most important, lasting work. Major points in Williams' career are listed to the right. He was born in 1750. In 1776 he worked in France as a U.S. commercial agent and studied military science. In 1796 he was named associate judge in Philadelphia. He was commissioned an army major of artillerists and engineers in 1801, and later was named inspector of fortifications and post commander at West Point. In 1802, Williams was named first superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. From 1807 through 1811, he designed Castle Williams and Castle Clinton.
He resigned his post in 1812 and then became Brigadier General of the New York Militia. Two years later, in 1814, he was elected to Congress. Jonathan Williams died in 1815. Directly to the right at about 11 o'clock, the next image shows a historic topographical map of the city and county of New York in 1836. The display text reads, Jonathan Williams made good use of the harbor's geography. He located the castle where its field of fire would overlap with that of other forts in New York's Upper Bay. He also used the harbor's geology. He built the castle on a rocky outcropping called Perkins Point. It supported the fort's massive weight and put it close to the shipping channel. Passing enemy ships would be in close range of its guns. The text continues further to the right and explains the castle's shape. It reads, Most forts of the time, like Fort Jay, also on Governor's Island, were angular. Castle Williams, based on an earlier European design, was circular. It could cover more of the harbor with constant cannon fire, exposing fewer soldiers to harm. At the 9 o'clock position is a small modern photo that shows a close-up of Castle Williams' red and pink sandstone walls. The text reads, Jonathan Williams knew that masonry construction, not earth and dirt, would enable him to build a fort with several tiers or levels. Each tier would have protected places for guns and gunners. Local stonecutters, masons, and laborers shaped and laid red sandstone from New Jersey and brick from Pennsylvania to build the castle. A special mortar made from lime, sand, and iron filings held the stone and brick together. As it set, it became harder and denser. The final position at about 7 o'clock is a quiz titled, What's in a Name? The text reads, Before Castle Williams, many American forts were designed by the French. As a result, many words used to describe parts of forts are French. See if you can match the word to its meaning. To play the quiz, press the yellow button now. The yellow button is located two rows above and one column to the left of the green button. To conclude your tour, enter the number 17 on your audio guide keypad. Audio track layer. Quiz on model display shelf. About two and a half minutes. At the seven o'clock position on the display shelf are three columns of three lift doors each. We'll refer to them from top to bottom as A, B, and C. At the top of each column is a fort term. On the face of each door is a possible answer, only one of which is correct. For each column, we'll read the term, then each possible answer. Lastly, we'll tell you which answer is correct. We'll then read the additional information about the term found beneath the correct door. The first term, barbette, is a name for A, the roof of a fort, B, a small Barbie doll, C, a pointy wire. The correct answer is A, the roof of a fort. Barbette is French, after St. Barbara, the patron saint of artillerymen. N. Barbette refers to the practice of firing a gun over a parapet or a defensive wall, rather than through an embrasure. The second term found in the center column is an embrasure. The choices are A. An opening in a wall through which guns fire. B. A big hug. Or C. A tall, narrow castle tower. The correct answer is A. An opening in a wall through which guns fire. Embrasure is from the French word embrasie and is probably related to brasie, which means to widen an opening. The third and final column refers to a sally port. The choices are A, the port where Sally anchors her boat, B, a type of old ale, or C, a small, easily secured doorway in the wall of a fort. The correct answer is C, a small, easily secured doorway. Sally port comes from the old French term sire, which means to surge forward. The word port comes from the Latin word for door, which is portus. An example of a sally port can be seen and felt on the model by again locating the only pointed right angle of the castle's shape. On the right side is a small opening in the exterior wall. It also indicates the building's entrance and exit point today. To conclude your audio described tour, please enter the number 17 on your audio guide keypad. Track 17, Tour Conclusion, About 2 Minutes Before you conclude your tour, we'd like to call your attention to one final exhibit. Located by the courtyard wall, directly across from the 9 o'clock position of the scale model exhibit, is a life-size photo from before the restoration of the building. The image shows the deteriorating interior of a casemate, still with its prison-era modifications. Steel bars with peeling black paint, crumbling mortar and bricks, a small dingy sink hanging from a wall. A caption reads, Twilight years. In the mid-1970s, when the Coast Guard Community Center moved out of Castle Williams to other locations, the fortification fell into disrepair. Used as a storage facility, it did not require much maintenance, and in time, moisture entered the building through the roof and failing windows. Paint and other finished surfaces began to fail. This photo of an upper casemate was taken before the castle was cleaned and stabilized in 2010. This concludes your audio described tour. Thank you for visiting Governor's Island and Castle Williams. On behalf of the National Park Service, we hope you enjoyed your tour. As you leave the castle, please return your audio guide to the location you picked it up, at the main entrance and exit. 
If you are still at the model in the center of the courtyard, simply locate the point of the castle on the model. Turn your back to it, then move directly forward. In about 60 feet you'll come to the interior wall. Then continue to follow the wall to the exit doors. If you move to the photo display of the casemate, simply follow the interior wall counterclockwise until you reach the exit doors. Return your audio guide to the staff member, and please don't hesitate to ask if you have any additional questions.